Hello, and welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with library research fellow and world-renowned chef Justin Cherry to discuss his research topic, The Impact of George Washington's Mount Vernon in 18th Century Foodways. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to register for our special evening lecture featuring library research fellow Arista Rode, who will talk about her latest research regarding Francois-Jean de Chasselou, the unsung hero of the American Revolution. This event will take place on May 15, and more information can be found on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. And without further ado, we join Dr. Butterfield and Justin Cherry in the studio. What brought you to the Washington Library? What are you studying? I'm studying foodways of Mount Vernon with a direct influence of George Washington. And basically what brought me here was there's really a lot of resources that are available here, um, ledgers and journals and diaries, as well as farm accounts, um, correspondence with farm managers that basically circle around the fact that Foodways was very, very important, not only to the Washingtons themselves, but visitors and guests and also uh, enslaved workers here as well. So let's, let's start with the, the, the nuts and bolts of it. Um, what, what, when you, you mentioned these ledgers and farm reports, uh, what kind of things, what kind of uh, um, materials included these? What are, what, are, what are you able to pull out from them to understand what people were growing, what people were eating? Tell us a bit about that. So basically, uh, in the farm journals and ledgers, um, it's correspondence between Washington. Um, a big one is uh, James Anderson, who comes along later in the picture, that manages the farm as well as influences the building of the distillery and gristmill. Mm. Um, you know, that's very, very important. But the, the key terms that are, I'm pulling out of these ledgers are um, seeds, mm. seed, um, seedsmen from around the country that are basically giving Washington seed. Um, sending it to him. A lot came from the Lee family, um, a lot of them across the ocean um, through Arthur Young. And a lot of these things that come up, you correspond the ledger with the journals, and they sort of make sense when they start to plant these things, when they start to plant corn, and then when he's planting his kitchen garden. And basically it all involves, you know, money withdrawals and, and, and purchase goods, um, especially when he was also exporting a lot of the flour uh, as well as selling it locally in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And when you can track these things, you can pull apart, and even in the journals, uh, varieties, varieties of wheat, varieties of vegetables, um, varieties of just miscellaneous uh, foodways and foodstuffs. Um, for example, olives and cheese and all these things that were coming from England through a uh, merchant company, uh, Robert Carey and Company, which was a big influencer of his goods, and he basically modeled what he got off of the people that were around him. George Washington modeled what Yes. Time. So basically other, um, other citizens of that nature, of that wealth status, um, of course, like his wealth increased tenfold when he married Martha. Mm-hmm. So he also inherited um, the Robert Carrying Company, uh, the account, which mm-hmm. he actually had to prove by sending a, a copy of a marriage license and just to prove that he was now the head of the estate and uh, it was no longer John Park Custis. 
And with that being compared to other wealthy people around him, he had to have certain things when people came to dinner, when people, when guests came to dinner, um, fellow fellow statesmen and, and people like that, and he had to have all these things to make sure that he was on the same status level as as everybody else. Is, and, it, ex- is it expensive to do that in the 18th yes. century? Yes. Um, I mean, basically, by the end by the end of the revolution, he had to borrow money to make his way to Philadelphia and New York hmm. because he had no no sums of money. His farm wasn't making that much money, and you know it was hard to do that after. But once everything got back together in place, and he was uh, in quite good correspondence with uh, Lund Washington during the revolution, but they really were not making money that they should. Hmm. And he really um, transferred all of his uh, things from tobacco into wheat in the 1760s. And when that kind of took place, a lot of things changed for him because people wanted his flour. He was exporting it. And, you know, when you have all these products, then you can afford certain things. But revolution happens. Mm-hmm. He's kind of out of money. And then when he comes back, he starts experimenting with lots of varieties of wheat, up to 14 um, varieties of wheat. And he finally settles on one or two in the late 1780s. And his super fine flour that's coming from the grist mill is very popular in Alexandria. It's very popular uh, an export. Hmm. And this sort of replaces what tobacco built him the first four or five years. And he kind of learned that from Robert Carter. Um, mm-hmm. His plantation's about an hour south, and it's it's really influential of him to kind of think, hey, I can be this merchant miller. I can not only grow the wheat, but I can also process it. And there was some accounts of him uh, uh, toll milling, which is milling for various people that are in the area. They'll bring the wheat grain to you. Mm-hmm. They'll grind it. And then they'll have to pay, it's usually an eighth of what um, they would pay for the actual wheat. They would pay the miller to do that. And when he gets all these things, you can start to purchase other things. And then later in life, um, the distillery's built, which is a giant moneymaker. Let's get there in a minute. (laughs) Uh, But uh, let's say on wheat for a minute, just because it seems like a good example. You mentioned 14 varieties. First of all, how do you know how many varieties? And, and just talk to us a bit about that. And then second of all, are, are you able to track down these 14 varieties today in the 21st century? Talk to us about the, what, you're, what you're able to learn. So the wheat varieties in general, um, without getting too, too in detail about sure. the 14 varieties, um, they basically came across not really in the ledgers but in journals and his diary. Um, a lot of them were sent, like I said, from Arthur Young, a lot of them from various seedsmen across um, across the colonies, really. But some of these varieties, he was kind of the first one um, south of the Mason-Dixon line to really experiment with them. Hmm. Um, he was actually doing a lot of things with uh, post-revolution wheat. Some wheat came on ships from you know British warships, hmm. and actually they they think that that was the first cause of a Hessian fly, which actually ruined wheat in the latter part of the 18th century, but um, now it sort of stands as a, as a myth because the name of the, the fly was the Hessian fly, so they kind of gave that all a bad name because of uh, German soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the wheat varieties, a- after 
looking at them and, and knowing what I know now about wheat, the varieties in general are um, really hard to track down. Some of them are totally wiped off the map. Mm. Um, a lot of these varieties, you know, they they weren't they weren't as uh, elaborate as as most, and you know, people wanted a super super white wheat. That's what they wanted. Uh, I mean, as much as you hear about whole wheat today and yeah. and and health things like that, it's back then the the whiter the flour, the better, and the more money it got because right. it, it was it was just super fine. And it was great for bread making. It was great for pastries. So, are you able to track down any of these? Yeah, there's about two. Varieties? There's about two varieties that exist: um, uh, red May wheat, which is actually the latter part of the 18th century, really late, um, came across, and that still exists today. And then uh, Virginia white May wheat, which has come back um, probably in the last year or so, and it's still in kind of production phase. People are growing it um, in South Carolina. People are growing it um, pretty much all over the South, just as a as a program through um, Anson Mills, which gives seeds to them um, for free. And basically, there's no monetary value exchanged. And then, in fact, they'll buy it back from them so they can grind and and sell to retail and wholesale to to chefs. But Red May is probably the most popular. Um, but the Virginia White May should be good to go in a couple of years wow. for, for farms everywhere. Uh, if you step away from wheat, uh, are there other um, crops here at Mount Vernon that you've learned something about in terms of, uh, of varieties and connected to, to the present and, and been able to, to, to find it or track it down? Yeah, so corn is one of those. Um, Virginia gourd seed corn, which is quite popular, um, it actually got breeded in the 1860s in Texas, and that's called Texas gourd seed, but it is of the same parent varietal. It mm-hmm. just got bred out as, as time went on. But And Texas likes to name things for themselves. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> but Virginia gourd seed corn, I mean, it's really one of those corns that um, was, was of multi-use. Um, he used it later on in his distillery and actually found out that he didn't quite like that corn variety. Um, Indian corn was the more popular one, which is, you know, basically just just a mix of a few a few different corns of that time period. Mm. And um, also, he was getting corn from Orange County, Virginia, uh, which he mentions in a letter that he would very much like that variety. And in discussing it with uh, the Lees in a letter, he talks about he was after corn. And but don't make it that gourd seed variety. And this was especially for his distillery um, because the sugar content in corn back then was not as influenced as it is today. And when you have corn fermenting in the mash and making whiskey, that kind of, you know, you need that, that higher, higher sugar content. But corn's one of them and barley is another, um, mm. up to seven varieties of barley. Uh, most of the time, it was a, a plow over crop, which basically, or or a cattle feed, um, which basically just added nutrients to the soil. Uh, there was a malt house uh, in between the grist mill and the distillery, so they were malting, like floor malting, their own barley mm-hmm. at some time later in the 1790s. But all these things, this this barley, they kind of. Um, don't stay quite in perspective because he's growing all these other things for 
his kitchen garden as well. Um, mm. lot, lots of apples, lots of fruit. Um, there's a very popular peach that um, Jefferson grew actually in the 1814 or 1815, and uh, Washington had it in the 1790s. Hmm. Um, a, lot, a lot of actually people compare Jefferson really as the as like the founding foodie, if you will, mm-hmm. um, of all the varieties of fruits and apples. He was a big advocate of that, and him and Washington often, you know, swap seeds through letters. And but Jefferson was more of the uh, dreamer mm-hmm. of I want to grow this, I want to grow this, I want to grow this. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Mm-hmm. Which experimentation in that time was very prominent. But Washington was more of the the practical practical farmer, how can I grow this? Is it going to grow well? And if it doesn't work out in the next year or so, we're going to completely wipe it off yeah. and move on to something else. What's an example of something that he tried and just decided it was an utter failure? I mean, basically all those varieties of wheats. Mm. Um, actually, barley was one of them, too. After two or three years, he started purchasing barley. Mm. Um, one of his main purchasers uh, of barley was a brewer in Alexandria, Andrew Wales. Um, which owned a brewery and a, and a malt house, and he purchased quite a bit of um, malted barley over the years from him. But, yeah, barley was another one, mm-hmm. and actually it became barley became more popular in the 1810s and 20s after all these uh, flies came and killed crops, mm-hmm. and barley sort of rose up a little bit and became more popular. But it was also used... And James Anderson, being his farm manager at the time, when he was growing this barley, um, Scotsmen especially were very fond of eating like cracked barley, cracked barley and broth, and it's right. very aromatic, but it's a very simple food. And you know, these were the kind of things that you want to kind of make connections to if if there's a you know that kind of culture, and and he's running the farm. Would he have eaten this on the side, yeah. other than you know feeding cattle and all that kind of things? But were you able to confirm it? Not yet. Mm-hmm. Not yet. It's a lot of a lot of theories. Yeah. Um, there's lots of theories about a lot of foods, how they got here, um, how they kind of made their way into the lives of people in the colonial period. Yeah. Um, potatoes being one of them. Uh, Washington was a very early uh, grower of potatoes. Mm. Uh, in the 1760s, basically potatoes evolved from uh, coming into New Hampshire and New England area in the 1720s and kind of working their way down. Uh, most people thought potatoes were poisonous, hmm. um, but the influence of New England and trade and all that kind of migrated south. And in the south, uh, white white Bermuda potatoes and sweet potatoes were just called potatoes. So oh. when referencing research, it's very hard because, you know, is this, are they talking about the sweet potato? Or are they talking about the Bermuda whites? Are they right. talking about these potatoes that came from the West Indies? Or are they talking about um, Irish and red uh, white potatoes? Wow, so many challenges with the record. It, it really is, and it's it's confusing, and you know the terminology of, of foodways back then is a lot different. There's spices that you won't recognize. There's mm-hmm. spices that sometimes you just don't know what it is, and you know some of the herbs they don't even exist anymore. Wow! And you know it's kind of hard putting all that stuff together, but 
it's kind of a work cut out for you kind of deal. Sure. <laughs> uh, the you mentioned alcohol a few times. Let's get mm-hmm. right to it. So t- tell me uh, just a, in broad strokes about the distillery practice here and and what you've been able to learn about what was being put into the the product. Yeah. So. Basically, when he started making whiskey, which actually tracks before the distillery is built in 1797, there's a few early distillation uh, references that I've found that predate even um, even predate the Revolution, mm. um, which is very interesting. A lot of it was used for farm use. Um, a lot of it was uh, actually paid to. Um, enslaved workers on holidays. Right. Uh, rum being a big one, but whiskey, there's a reference to whiskey in the 1760s, and there was no purchase of whiskey, so they must be making mm. it. And there was early stills here that are later referenced when they build a distillery, and they're talking about the old stills okay. uh, being used. But basically, they used corn, uh, rye, and barley. And uh, corn... Corn not being that great of a factor, but but rye being a, a bigger factor in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we know today, bourbon, to be a American bourbon, it has to be 52% corn. And back then it was pretty much whatever you had to make alcohol. Whatever was the biggest crop, was it rye, was it corn? And mm-hmm. barley was only a little bit amount of that. And that, that malted barley actually added to the, the natural sugars when you uh, combine that and water and you ferment it and basically add 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 yeast to it and you know it becomes that liquid that you put in a pot and you boil it and it gets distilled you mentioned the enslaved people uh, having uh, some of this whiskey what else do we know about it where was it being sold was it being drunk in the mansion what, what do you know so Washington um, later in his life he, he didn't much care for rum um, he was more of a Madeira kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But whiskey later uh, in life kind of caught on, I think, especially it was sold. Um, they actually were making 10 to 11, 12,000 gallons by the end, and it was one of the biggest distilleries. That sounds like a lot. Is it a lot? That's a lot. Okay. <laughs> For back then, yes, it's quite a lot, but compared to today's modern uh, distilleries, it's it's not so much, but back then it's it's quite a bit, and it you know, really increased his profits towards the end of his life. And, you know, I think it was very important that this was kind of introduced to him because I I really think he wasn't for the idea. Mm-hmm. If you're reading the letters and he kind of says, I don't know if this is going to work out. And James Anderson, who has done it before, said, "I it, it's going to work. And you do have to put product into it. You do have to grow the crops. And if you're not growing enough crops, of the um, rye and the corn or the barley, you have to purchase them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you sort of, depends on the season, but it really comes across quite well in a couple letters that he's like, hey, like, I don't have enough corn. We need corn for the distillery. Right. But there was also use um, in the 1770s, actually prior to the distillery, that they were folding wheat into... Uh, the mix for the whiskey. Hmm. So basically, that's like a weeded whiskey or weeded bourbon today. Okay. You know, it adds a adds a bit of flavor, but it was also things that were left over from uh, milling the wheat because that all these products had to be run through the mill before they went to the distillery to get fermented. And you know, the wheat, some of the wheat, probably middlings 
or probably even uh, what they call ship stuff, which is like the bran that's extracted when you sift flour. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these things were added in just because that's all they had. Wow. That's quite interesting. So you've, you've um, described everything thus far. I think any listener could be excused for thinking that you're someone that just sits around and reads books all day. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about how you got into this. And, and I think uh, uh, some of this is uh, some hands-on experience in your, in your own right. Uh, maybe not with distilling. I can't speak to that. <laughs> but tell us about how you got into this subject of exploring 18th century food. Um, basically, from a small child from the age of four, um, I've done historical reenacting and living history. Uh, my whole family does it. My wife does it. My daughter does it. My brother does it. And we, we pretty much have a very much love of history from the area that I'm from, which is western Pennsylvania. It's very rich, especially with young George Washington history. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I sort of got involved in that, and then I started cooking professionally. Um, in my early 20s, and I kind of moved from um, city to city cooking. I traveled to Europe. I came back from Europe and opened uh, a Husk restaurant with uh, Chef Sean Brock and kind of really opened my eyes to southern foodways mm. and kind of the history behind and the stories behind southern foodways. And I, I, that's what I always strive to do is to cook historic food um, at these places that I was working in a restaurant at and some of it was you know they're pushing for the more modern food and but it's really the stories that that really you know increase the uh, the pleasure of the food and I really miss living history working at a restaurant mm -hmm. 12 14 hours a day I never had the chance to do living history again and it was you know every couple years I'd do something and I really just kind of wanted to get back involved with it and the easiest thing that I could think of was uh, designing and having a 18th century clay oven built, travel around the historic sites all over the east coast and sometimes in the interior and really interpret what foodways were um, using all ingredients that are all 18th century. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you'll come across interpreters and they're not, you know, they're using modern day flowers and wondering why recipes sometimes don't work and it's because you don't have the right right ingredients really and now and once you got into that world uh, were you able to find other people like you who were tapping into the original uh, yeah. uh, ingredients yeah there's there's quite a few not so much that actually interpret and and dress the period and all that okay. but you know sometimes using in a modern restaurant it's it's really a trend probably in the last 5 years that's kind of caught on because the servers have a story to tell the guests while they're eating, like, mm -hmm. hey, this corn was grown by, you know, so-and-so, and then they got it from a seed that was, you know, 200 years old. So what's your goal in, the say, five, ten years from now in terms of, of studying foodways here at Mount Vernon and in the 18th century? Uh, what, what, where do you want to come to? What do you want to produce out of all of this? I basically want to become a spokesperson for Foodways of the 18th century. Mm. Um, I'd like to complete a couple books to serve as kind of guides to people understanding, you know, how important food is, especially in that time period, and how there was kind of a mini little renaissance happening in the mid-18th century um, from seeds and different crops and just all Foodways coming together because it's something that everybody can understand. It's, it's food. It's something yeah. people eat every day, and it's it's very easy to push a point across of, you know, 
this is what they were eating, this is how they ate it, this is where they ate it, this mm-hmm. is where it came from. And it's it's really all about, like I guess, food origins, really. Wow. If you were to have a chance to, to eat here at Mount Vernon, um, is there any, any, any dish that you've come across that you would most want to eat in the way that it was produced here on the estate? You know, it's, it's funny because I was trying to think of that a couple times, and it's there's such a variety of, of dishes, but I think just, you know, I'm a, I'm a simple guy, and I think George Washington was as well when it all came down to it. Really? And I think it's a little... Uh, with his Madeira. With his Madeira. Besides that, he was simple. And, uh, you know, hoe cakes with honey and butter. Wow. And swimming in honey and butter. Is that how he wanted them? Yep, that's how he had them. Wow. Have you made hoe cakes with honey and butter? Yes. Okay. I I want to try them. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful opportunity. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 